From ACAST Studios and Western Sound, this is The Score, Season 1, The Bank Robber Diaries. I'm Ben Adair, and this is Episode 12, Cracks in the Wall. So you'd gone from state prison to federal prison, and then you'd gone from federal prison to the SHU, the Special Housing Unit, and now you're going into solitary. Did you feel like you knew what you were in for? No, but very quickly I realized, oh, this is like doing time in L.A. County Jail. Because in L.A. County Jail, it's these little pods of, you're locked in 23 hours a day in a pod. Because they don't have, like, the prisons. You got the yard, they got the gym. They got, in L.A. County Jail, you can be fighting a case there for three months, four months, and you're basically locked in this one place. So, uh, weirdly, this was not that different to me to be locked down for 23 hours a day in a cell where you only get three showers a week. A lot of uh, jails, that's how they operate. That You're not there to have programs, go to the gym, go to the, um, the chapel. Like, you don't, you, don't get, you don't get a lot of benefits that way. That's why a lot of guys want to get the hell out, plead out, and go to the prison where they can uh, wear their own clothes and buy stuff from the commissary and go to the yard and run and lift weights and play handball. So I already understood that. You know what I mean? In a weird way. It wasn't so far out of my realm of comprehending, oh, this is so different for me. I'm not going to be able to handle this. So you thought, essentially, I got this, no biggie. Yeah. And you know what I realized I might really have it? About three days later, a guard comes to my cell door and he puts a bag of canteen in there. And he says, open cell three. And I'm like, that's me. I'm cell three. What the fuck? I look up and there he is. He puts the bag down on the ground out front of my cell. The cell door opens and he slides in with his foot. And then he closed out three, and I go look at all these chips and tostitos, and and there's cookies, and there's bars of soap, and there's toothpaste, and toothpaste. It's a care package. And he brought the guy who was running the front door to the shoe was an old guard who had worked in our unit. So he said, "Hey man, get this to the lawyer." So like, <laughs> like I had like I just got like commissary brought to me, man. I'm like, oh, I can do this, <laughs> you know? Like I was gonna be taken care of. Was there a point where you realized, oh shit? I don't have this. Yeah, when I started going crazy, <laughs> that, was, that was when I was like, oh, I might not be built for this. I might not be built for this. Part one, the hole. Can you describe what your cell looked like? What did your cell look like? So when you walked in, it was take one step into my cell when the door opened. It wasn't bars. It was a steel door. Steel door would open. Take one step in, immediately to your right at an angle facing the cell was a little toilet, stainless steel toilet, connected to a sink against the wall as one unit. So the sink was right behind the, the, the shitter. 
Kind of like where the tank of a toilet would be. It was tank a of a toilet, and there's no seat on the toilet. It's just cold stainless steel. That put your cheeks on there and just boom, dump a grumpy. It's like we say. So, um, and then about like if I'm sitting on there, chunking a deuce, my knee would be touching the bottom of my bed. All right, so like that's how cramped we are. So the sow is the length of my bed and the toilet, the toilet facility right there. Um, against the left wall is a tiny, a thin desk. Like you could fit a paper on it sideways, but you could not, like you know, from the wall out. It was, it was, it was so it wasn't very wide. And a stool connected to the the wall would come out, and you could sit on this this cold ass round stool. So how many cells are down there? There's fourteen cells down there, I think. And they're just like walking you down into solitary, like that's it. Because I had just committed an act of violence upstairs, gotten getting out of my handcuffs and attacking a man. They wanted to lock me up because now I was dangerous in a way that they hadn't prepared for. So they put me in a holding cell downstairs. And then all of a sudden I hear this voice. It's like, hey, maybe. And I think I'm hearing a woman's voice, female voice. I'm like, what the hell? We got women down here? So I go to my door and I can't believe what I see. I see what looks like the back of a baby elephant. And it's walking really slow, lumbering. And it's brown. And it's big old, like two fat thighs. And they're, they, you can see them together in the middle. And they go all the way down to the big fat cankles and big fat feet. And I'm thinking, what the hell? Is and it's bent over. Like I'm, and I'm thinking, I can't. And I had a little tiny crack to see it walk by. And I'm like, what the hell is this? Now, I didn't realize at the time, but I met a guy named Heavy D. Heavy D was a 673-pound inmate who only wore a sheet because he soiled himself. He was so big, he would just soil himself. Hmm. And um, and Heavy D got attacked in his cell. A guy uh, said, hey, can I clean the tear? And then the guards like, yeah, get out of your cell. And he went over there, got the broom, started sweeping the broom. As soon as the guards took off and went back into their office, he was he he put the broom on the ground. He broke it, the tip of the, with his foot. And now he turned it into this harpoon. And Heavy D, because Heavy D um, stunk, and because Heavy D shit on himself, and uh, Heavy D, um, they left his food trap open all day, 24 hours a day. Because periodically he would come and you could see him stick his hand out and drop um, the soiled sheets on the ground several times a day. So they left his tray open. So Homeboy goes and lays this... this, um, this uh, this sharpened room on the on the door and puts his hand behind it and just launches like a missile, just wah, just shoves it in as fast as he can and it just hits. It totally hits heavy, right? That was a crazy place, man. There's people in there who are very, very psychologically uh, troubled. And in solitary, that's where you see people break. I'll give you an example of how tense the place was. There was one Rastafarian who was calm, he was crazy. 
He would light fires. He would scream. He would yell. He was he was mad. There was a madness to a real psychological disorder. And then there was a real sober, older, dangerous Rastafarian guy. And um, every day after dinner, they would leave our food traps open for a little while. And we would all sit at our doors and we'd just shoot the shit. Well, these Rastafarian guys would talk. And the older guy, like I said, sober minded, the other guy was, they were both dangerous in their own way. Um, but they would have a conversation. We could all hear it. And then, all right, brother. Well, you know, it's all good, man. You know, take care of whatever. I can't even pretend their voice, but I mean that they, it was a friendly goodbye, closing it down. Everything was cool. But the, this guy was so fucking wise. He hit me to something. The older guy next to me, the older Rastafarian. Like Wednesday or Thursday, they hadn't talked. I would have heard them talk because we're on the same tier. They hadn't talked. And he would yell out, hey, brother. And say, yeah, brother. Say, are we beefing? Oh, no, 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 we're not beefing. We're, all, we're good, man. Don't worry about it. He said, okay, just want to know. Nothing had happened. They ended up good, but what he understood was, in your imagination, because you're in solitary and because you're by yourself and you're so fucking neurotic, you start breaking down the conversation. Wait, what do you mean by that? Oh, that motherfucker thinks I'm a punk. Oh, I got something for his ass. Oh, fuck that. Next time I get loose, I'll go. Like, you can just be, you can let your mind go crazy. And you can concoct all sorts of plots and intrigues against you. And you can ascribe all certain manner of disrespect coming from that man's heart toward you. And plot the fucking end of his days. That's the group of men I was in. There was killers there. There was there was just so much. My brain took in all that crazy and violence and menace. And now I couldn't get at anyone. <laughs> like, if you've ever gotten out of your handcuffs, they don't ever give you a chance to get out of your handcuffs again. They not only handcuff you, they put a big black box around this handcuff. And they lock that underneath. And it's just like, it's terrible. You can't move. You can barely, barely move. So you, I, I was starting to get all this rage was building up in me like it usually did, but I would always be able to find a victim. And now I'm like, it just cannibalized me. It went inward. You know, I just like was hating myself and hating life. And I just had, and then I was, this is the most tense place I'd ever been. That tear was the most tense place I'd ever been. And everybody was, their imaginations were completely fucked. I mean, everyone was fucked. I just, I had a clear mind of like, I fucking hate everyone. I hate life. I hate myself. Fuck everything, you know? Like, and it just went inward. How did that start to affect you? So first thing that started happening was... Um, you know, um, writing. I was up. I couldn't sleep right. Um, 
chatty as fuck with myself, like writing all the time, obsessive, like between words, man, what's going on? Like almost like if you saw me in there, you would hear me like not talking to myself, but I was just, there was a voice in my head that was just racing, mind racing, right? I'd be that guy if I was outside, I had a bunch of notebooks and I explaining the whole universe kind of thing. And then I started hearing the voices in my head. The first wasn't voices. First was like I felt like something was going wrong with my hearing. Like I was at a party and I was in the bathroom and I could hear outside the door. Like a party going on, right? No noises, no voices, nothing. And then one day I heard Joe. Joe. And I'm lying down in bed and I get up and I go look out there. And I'm like, what the fuck was that? Nothing. Nobody like, hey, Joe, man, you got a book? And nobody called. Uh, a couple days there. Joe. Like a voice was coming above the den. Was the den always there? No. That was always there. I was always there. Stayed there. I was like, oh, shit. One day I was at my desk and I hear Joe and I turn around. Joe. And I thought it was in my cell, man. I could have sworn it was like a guard or something. Was like, it was shocking. The first time I thought maybe a homeboy was fucking with me or something. I didn't have a homeboy, but I mean, I thought maybe someone was fucking me. And then so I used to play concentration games where I would look at one spot on the wall. And if you look at one spot on the wall long enough, yeah, it's hard on your eyes. Your eyes want to move. And, and it was challenging five minutes the first time. I eventually got up to an hour. And like, oh, psychedelic shit starts happening around that one spot. And eventually, because the world is moving and your eyes are moving, nothing is still and your eyes move. And so that spot will start moving. And so it was like, oh shit, it's moving. And I'm watching it move, and then it became a horse galloping, and then the, it became, I was like, oh, fuck, something's happening, it's kind of cool. But what ended up happening is when, one day I'm looking at that spot, and then whoop, all of a sudden it was a face. And it morphed into another face, and I was like, oh, this is cool, this is like that Michael Jackson video, you know? Where like everyone's faces are morphing and I was like, oh, that's so cool, that's so cool. And I, and I was like, all right, well, I want to stop now. It's been an hour and I go to move away. And I still see it moving. I'm like, oh shit, and I close my eyes and it's gone. I was like, oh, fuck. That's crazy. It wasn't where I was looking. <laughs> it ended up migrating over here to where I looked over here. Like, it was in my vision now. It took over my vision. I said, wow, that's crazy. So the next day I do it again, except this time when I pull away, it's showing it again. I close my eyes and it's in my, it's in the darkness of my head, in my eyes. I was like, oh, fuck. The din is getting louder and now I can kind of, it feels like there's voices. But I, you can't make them out. But now instead of like, it's like, like it's more animated, right? Joe. 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 Joe.
One day I hear something, I turn around, and there's a little bald boy standing in the corner of my cell. And I'm totally shocked, and I'm totally scared. And my first thought was like, it's not bringing your kid to prison. <laughs> that ain't happening. That's not what this is. And I got to tell you, man, it felt as real as you in front of me right now. I just roll over and I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. I'm snapping now. Now it's happened. And I know now I'm in trouble. Because I had seen it happen three times on that tier. One guy um, went crazy and he rubbed feces all over his body. Another guy went crazy and he, got, he collected the little jams that we got, the little cups. He, he got two in the morning with a toast. He had just smeared them all over the walls and stuck them in the wall like art. And just the, all the fruit flies went in the cell. It was crazy. And he wouldn't get out to go bathe. They had to, like, extract him. And another guy walked out, big old, big old guy, walked out with a T-shirt, like, folded inside like a halter top, and then and, and he rolled up his, his boxes like panties. And like, he's not Sam anymore, he's Sally kind of thing, right? So I was like, oh, fuck, I don't want to go out like that. I feel like I'm going mad. We'll be right back. Part two. The way out. So, Joe, you see this bald boy in your cell, and you feel like you're going mad. What happens next? What do you do? So I lay in bed, and I go, finally, I fell asleep. And it was daytime when that happened, too. It wasn't like a nighttime thing. Did the boy say anything to you? Nothing. Did he, he, nothing. He didn't... Oh, it's what I just described. I saw him, and I was like, okay, I'm going to ignore you now. <laughs> I could just turn around. Like... That was it. It was that. It was that fast. I didn't engage with it, and like I didn't want to give it any more fucking space. And then it was, it was gone. You know. When you saw the bald boy in your cell, you rolled over, you ignored it, and you basically forced yourself to go to sleep. But then, as you're laying in your bed, I mean, you have to be freaking out, right? Like, are the voices getting louder? Or are you just terrified that you're losing it? I don't remember, like, I'm, like you're making it sound like there's all these things, this and that and this and that. Let's right. just say one thing. What I remember was, I don't remember if I went a bit. I, I went over, and I was a mess. I was in distress. 
at some point I fall asleep, at some point I'm thinking about it, I'm like, what the hell was that? Like, they're a blur of just distress. Sleep, eat, oh, what the fuck? Oh, what the fuck? What the, uh, it's, it was a depression, it was, it was, it was a mess. It was blurry. Because just think, my mind had just fractured. It's not unlike the concussion I was there. Like, if you asked me what I was thinking before my dad came home and I stabbed him because I had a concussion, it was the same thing. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I don't remember what I was thinking. I, what I remember is getting the knife and opening the drawer. I don't know how long it took for him to come back, if you ask me. Was it five minutes? Was it three hours? I have no clue. I don't remember. It was just... And the same thing for this. It's just... At some point, I had to have slept. So I don't know how I slept. What I slept like. How long. And so... Exactly when I roll over and decide I'm going to think, I, I, I don't know how long, that time and that, and, and the, the interesting thing about solitaire is time is this other weird dance, right? But it, very quickly after, I realized, oh shit, when I was seven, uh, this little kid rode his bike into my neighborhood, and he had one hand on the top of his head, and the little front of his wig was <laughs> flapping in the wind, and he was pedaling, with holding on with one hand. And there was this kid from another neighborhood. He rode his bike into our neighborhood looking for friends, and he had leukemia. I know this because he, we became friends, and he asked his mom if I could go visit him, and our parents made, you know... Um, they made a plan and we rode our bikes over to his place, but we went over to his house and he had a little, his parents had made a little clubhouse in the garage for him. And, uh, he went, as soon as we stepped in the clubhouse, he peeled his wig off and just threw it on, on a table and it had these dried loops of tape on it. It didn't, nothing to really hold it sturdily on his head, right? And he said, oh, yeah, I got leukemia. That's I didn't know what the fuck it was. And so we were friends for a little while and then he died. And uh, I was like, oh, I think that was dude. That was him. That was him. I mean, the, the memory came to me. And to me, because that memory came, was instigated by that, I've always associated that bald boy myself with the bald boy who I knew when I was a kid. That's why people will say, oh, well, you were an angel visited, you know? I just look at it like something in my con subconscious said, threw me a fucking line and said, dude, pull this. And I pulled it, and memories started coming in from that period of time with my mother still alive, and all, it just, stories of my innocence came. Thinking about that, oh, wait, so he came in, and my, how did that happen? I remember he had leukemia. Oh, that's right. He did this, and this happened, and that happened. Oh, that's right. He was there. Like, 
Like, all, oh, that's right. My mother called his mother. He knew his, his phone number, which was weird to me because I didn't know mine. Okay, that's right. And then my mother called and then she, she just let me go. That's weird. That's right. My mom just let me go with him. I, I remember and started remembering. So that's how I went. That was my lifeline out of that. You know, it was like I could start remembering a story and I come out of it with story. How did your, like, how did the memory of your mom and the memory of your dad kind of play in that story being created? Well, the thing was that all of a sudden my mother's alive again in my memory. Right. As I've only been thinking of my mother's dead. I never really thought that much about her as alive. And in this memory, my mother was still healthy. So I was like, oh, this is real innocence. My mother's healthy. And then I started having memories of my mother healthy at that time. When I was seven on Deland Street, man, I remembered all sorts of stuff. What it was mostly about was that we were happy in those days. That was a happy time. My mom and dad, I remember they laughed because on that street, I used to go down the block. There was a guy who did um, um, repairs on bikes. And I would go there to get free air on my tires and stuff. And then my mom and dad went there once, and the guy was like, hey, you know, your son's been coming here. I've been fixing his bike and doing these things. So you guys owe me a little bit of money. And my dad came home, and he wasn't mad, and neither was my mom. They're like, hey, you can't just go. That guy, I said, but he gave me free air. That Yeah, he said, yeah, but all that other stuff's not free. You can't just do that. But they weren't mad. They weren't mad. I was just a little seven-year-old boy, and I was loved, and that guy loved me down there, and everyone in the neighborhood knew me. Like, it was like that kind of thing. So I was remembering a pristine period of time in which I was loved and nurtured and safe and everyone was healthy and I was innocent. And there I am, contrast to where I am now, fucking going mad in solitary confinement all those years later with all the terrible things I'd done on my conscience. I earned that place in that dungeon. But, the, you know, all the terrible things that were going on, all the things I'd become, cheering on the shit on the guards and the burning, the fires and whatever, the stabbings and the other man, like all that stuff that I was... And now there's a time for me to remember, I was a sweet kid. <laughs> I was like, wait, what the fuck? Like, this memory came up. It was like the dirtiest fucking ground in the dirtiest fucking neighborhood in the United States, and there's this beautiful little flower coming out of the concrete. That's what it felt like, man. I'm like, what the fuck? There's some beauty under here somewhere? Like, to be reintroduced to myself in that story, and then it started started happening, and I started saying, wait, this wasn't... This wasn't determined that I would be this guy. There's all this other evidence. I'm a kind of a sweet guy, a nice guy. I could have been something else. And so I just started writing stories from my past. That's, it felt good and terrible. I feel shitty to write out things that happened to me. Uh, we had all these talks growing up. Uh, God break me. God break. Guess what? I fucking just got humbled fucking all day long with that thing. It was, it was humbling. 
Joe, do you feel like if you hadn't been in solitary that any of this would have happened? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. In the Bible, the book that I knew, the piece of literature I knew the most, the stories I knew most about redemption, was that all the men who did something great all went to the desert, and they all had to grapple with the, the hell of themselves. Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses in the desert. St. Paul, he, he becomes a Christian. He spends nine years studying the scriptures before he becomes the greatest missionary ever. David wrote the Psalms in the caves. You know, what well, he was hiding from Saul, King Saul. So now what I'm doing is I'm in solitary confinement. And after this happens, it fits right into my, my thinking that, oh, this is my trial alone. I have to confront myself. Everyone had to deal with their solitude. Everyone, you want to make great change in your life? And all the great changes of the men that I had studied growing up, it happened in solitude. Terrible solitude. Anguish, want to kill themselves solitude. And now I was in it. And I was like, well, maybe this is actually what I'm supposed to, this is it. And when I was a boy and they said, you have a plan, we have a plan for you. God has a plan for you. Maybe this is it, to get right here like everyone else did, all the great men that I had admired and the mystics. This is it. I'm in my solitude. I got to better figure out how to do something with this solitude. I better figure out how to let a higher harmony assert itself in here than the madness. And that's what I work to try and do, to try and earn that mantle. Solitary, worst experience of my life. Guess what? Paradoxically, because I believe in paradox, it's one of the best experiences of my life because it created the occasion for me to observe something about myself, to experience something so deeply, this humility, that it created this propulsion in another way in a very dramatic fashion, right? So I'm broken, I'm fractured, I'm not strong anymore. Now I gotta be careful because if I want to even think about changing, like, how the fuck is it? I'm setting myself up. That was scary. Super fucking scary. We'll be right back. Part three. Go for broken. Joe, what was scary about that? What was scary about changing? Well, what I realized was, as I started thinking about changing, I realized, oh, fuck, that's hard. Like, I'd ra- it's easier to imagine going into a vault than it is to go and plumb the depth of my spirit. That's when I realized, oh, that's not really strong. I'm fearless about taking people in a vault. I'll go down a heartbeat. I'm fearless about walking in a cell with a knife. I'm fearless all day long about that. 
I don't want to go inside myself <laughs> and demand that I change and demand that I hold myself accountable to change within because I had tried to change and I had failed. I was a coward. That's why I did the things that were easy, violence. It was easy. It's lazy. It's lazy strength. And I realized I'm not fearless. I was a coward. I didn't want to confront any of the pain that I had gone through, that I was trying to hide, that the rage was hiding. And I had been telling myself I was fearless for all the things that I could do. And when I realized I was afraid to start thinking about changing, and like, oh, shit, what if I fail? Fuck that. I'm not going to change. I don't want to fail. <laughs> I don't want to fail. I was like, oh, you're a coward. You're weak. You think you're strong because you use this other measure of strength, but you're actually weak. You're a coward. You won't fucking go in there and do the work. You're mm. afraid to fucking fail. I was like, uh, I don't want to be that guy. So I decided to change my idea of strong and, and weak and say, okay, I've been thinking I'm strong. I'm actually weak. I want to get strong. How do I get real strong? I'm going to go know myself. I'm going to go, I'm going to go figure this out. Well, I started writing started writing all these stories down. It was the beginning of my memoir. Which stories did you write? Well, first one I wrote was The Ball Boy, which is the first story. And it's early in my memoir, but it was the first story I ever wrote. And then I just got a sheet of paper and I said, Mom, what are the stories I've been telling people all my life that mean something to me? They communicate something about me. Oh, I'm brave because of this. Oh, you know what? I'm fearless because of this. We all have stories that we carry in this little box with us, and they are identity stories. They are the stories we use to tell people this is who we are, because these are stories we tell ourselves of who we are. And so I thought, what are the stories that I tell and have been telling since I was a child about who I am that represent me? Stabbing my dad at my mother's funeral, earthquake story, like all the stories. Like, what are the stories who make up my sense of identity? And I wrote them on a piece of paper, and there was a bunch with three pages of them. And it was just like um, this and this and that, you know, that Riverside exploding die pack, um, death of mother, a dad, chewing gum story with dad. And then I would wake up and say, okay, which one do I want to write? And then I would start writing them. That's when I started, came up with the concept of owning your story because you can't know who you are if you don't know the origins of things. If you can't recognize the patterns of things, you can't really know who you are if you haven't come to something and said, oh, wait, that's not when it started. That's, not, that's when you really confront yourself and say, I need to now reevaluate who I am based on the, the facts. That, like, there's all this stuff you have to, like, all of, they, it, in order for it to fit, you have to, like, realize what parts of your story are wrong, false, don't fit. And... That was super helpful. You talked about how when you were robbing banks, you were at the height of your prison Joe persona. You sort of shut your conscience off. Mm -hmm. Did your conscience co come back when you were in solitary? Yes. Yeah, once I decided to change my life, I'm like, okay, I'm willing to, I'm willing to go in here and look at my life, man. What did I do? What's the damage I, I caused? And then, yeah, my conscience just came back with a fury. I woke up like, oh, okay, we'll show you it all. And it doesn't come back and say, oh, we'll protect you. We're going to only give you a little bit of your shit at one time. It dumps it all on you. Mm -hmm. And I had stopped kind of growing 
and being aware, like trying to have any self-awareness, probably around age 11. And now I had done all these terrible adult things, <laughs> and I had to deal with it with a very fragile conscience, very fragile awareness. And so I instantly, almost instantly, I was like, I can never get back. This, I'm disqualified. And now I don't want to go be back, be a bad guy anymore because that sucks. But now I don't want to go and be a good guy because that's impossible. So you know what I probably should do? I should probably just like save everyone time, just kill myself. Like that's exactly the logic. It was so overwhelming, the desire to just say, man, I washed myself up. I failed myself. I'm like, I'm no good anymore. I'm disqualified from being able to ever do the dance with decency and beauty again. I'm just too terrible. Hmm. I think disqualified is a really interesting word. Yeah, I felt like I just didn't have a, I didn't have any right to want to go play in that arena with good people. I knew good people. I had heard a lot of good people. So the conscience was not kind to me because it did not, <laughs> it didn't say, oh, we love you, we're going to take care of you, we're just going to give you dribs and drabs of your shit. No, man. I was, I was suffocating under the, the stultifying weight of remorse and grief and shame. We saw it a couple weeks ago. That's what came up. What comes up is sometimes down deep in me is that, where I remember something and just the shame and the grief, uh, remorse of who I was just comes up. And yeah, man, that's, that's what it was then. Now I can at least cry it out and be like, well, you know, it is what it was. Life sucks. You know, you got to just lean into the love. I got my daughter. I got good people. I got my wife. I got friends. I got, you know, I got goodness. But then, man, I had nothing. Nothing. How, how did you start to wrap your head around that? I mean, how did you start to come back from... I'm just a fucking resilient son of a bitch. I'm, I'm just like, I find a way on cucaracha, man. I was like, wow, well, you know, I'm, like, I'm unbreakable. Unbreakable, and I found a way. I found a, something to give myself. Maybe I'll be a writer. Maybe I can be a writer. I was always good at writing. Maybe I should try to be a writer. Maybe I think that's it. I'll be a writer. That's Joe. Go be a writer. Let's figure out how to be a writer. Like <laughs> I gave myself something to look toward. You're good with words. Tell stories. Write stories. Come on, let's do this. And I just kept writing. Kept <laughs> writing. I wrote my way out of. Wrote my way out of prison. So eventually you get out of solitary. They figure out that you weren't responsible mm -hmm. for your yeah. ex-cellmate's murder. Guys, yeah. So what was it like to return to the general population then? You'd been gone for a long time. How did you the go back? The interesting thing is like, this is really fascinating. So just because I got let out doesn't mean that people thought that I didn't do it. <laughs> hmm. So I get let out, but people are like, did he do it? Did he? Maybe he didn't got away with it with those guys. Nobody knows, right? That's somebody nobody. So what accrued to me for doing that time was that people were like, I don't want to fuck with that dude because he might. I don't know. He maybe knows. I don't know. Hmm. What did the FBI have on him that brought him in there? Like, did he beat it because he wasn't it, or did he beat it because he's slick? Like, so it. it what accrued to me was like, oh, we're just not gonna fuck with that dude. We're gonna just give him the possibility that he's. He's a killer. And so everyone walks out of those those investigations like, yeah, man, maybe I did do it. I'm not going to tell the one. Fuck you. <laughs> like, you. You carry a certain bravado. That was the advantage. Like, I wore that. Like, I played. I dialed that up because now, get this. Now I wanted to go home. 
Now I'm thinking I got to be on the line and I don't want guys fucking with me. I got to like investigate on the page how to become a nice guy, a good person, soft. And the irony is that in order to give myself the space so nobody would fuck with me so I could be in my cell to like do all the soft investigation of myself is I had to (laughs) dial up my persona on the tier. Like, don't fuck with me, man. Don't you Mm -hmm. know who I am? Fuck, don't fuck with me, man. And people just leave me alone so I could go and do the soft sophistication. I had to continue to perform hyper maleness to get to learn all this time to read and, and write letters to people and try to change my life. This is episode 12 of the Bank Robber Diaries Cracks in the Wall. It's season one of The Score from ACAST Studios and Western Sound. Executive producers are me, Ben Adair, Joe Loya, Veronica Taylor, and Susie Warhurst. Producers are Cameron Kell, Haley Fox, and Stephanie Aguilar. Original composition and sound design is by Dan Leon. Production assistance from Annette Runhell. Mixing by John Evans Evans and Eric Romani. Next up is episode 13, The Monster. Stay tuned. <laughs> 